August 13, 2017. In Tajrish, a northern district of the Iranian capital Tehran, Anusha Ashuri is heading to the local market. He's carrying an empty suitcase. The zip is broken and he's going to get it fixed. And when I uh, arrived at the end of the street, as I was going to turn right to go to Tajrish, uh, a car pulled over and four men came out. They surrounded me and they asked for my name. Anusha gives the men his name. They order him into the back of the car and drive away. August 13th, 2017, marked day one of an ordeal for Anusha Ashuri that would last another 1,672. My name is Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. And as we were driving, and I didn't know what was happening, I thought perhaps I was being kidnapped or something. Uh, you are perplexed. You, you don't know what is going on. It's happened so quickly. Then the guy uh, next to the driver, he turned around, he gave me a piece of paper, which was my arrest warrant. The Iranian security services arrested British Iranian Anusha on espionage charges. In the car, Anusha was blindfolded and taken to a house where the first of many interrogations began. After a number of hours, he was put back into the car and driven to his mother's home. So we went inside, and they knew exactly what they were looking for. Unlike other cases where you see that the houses are ransacked and everything, we just went to to my room. Uh, They asked me to sit on a chair in front of the dressing table, and they started dismantling the desktop and they asked for my laptop, for my passport. They asked me if I have any money. And to their disappointment, I only had £40 in my pocket, and that was for when I returned. Anusha's interrogator told him that if he cooperated, he would be quickly released. Concerned that his mother, who was out of the house at the time, would worry about him, Anusha left a note saying he was spending the night with a friend. From his mother's house, Anusha would be taken to the notorious Evan prison. You can divide your stay at Evan in two phases. One phase one is when you are being interrogated, and there are certain interrogation centers, for example, 209 belongs to the intelligence. Uh, there is another one, 240, there is another one, 211, which all belong to different, for example, Ministry of Defense or the IRGC. Human Rights Watch has documented multiple testimonies of inmates held without charge being subjected to abuse and inhumane conditions in 209. Prisoners are placed in solitary confinement in a cell measuring around one metre by two metres, the rights group reported. During interrogations, people are forced to sign confessions in conditions that amount to, quote, psychological and physical torture. Many are denied medical care and are completely cut off from their family. During this first phase of imprisonment, Anusha was repeatedly interrogated and accused of being a spy, charges he and his family continued to deny. The apolitical British citizen was being subjected to the same trumped-up charges that dual nationals before and after him would face. Regardless of what Anusha told the interrogators, they created their own narratives. The more honest you are, the more detail you give them, they use that against you and they try to extract what they wish to do 
from it. And uh, they write their own reports according to their own wishes, not according to what you have written. My interrogator told me, if you are, do, if you are not cooperative, then um, you will be here for a long time. You will see springs come and go, you will see autumns come and go, winters come and go, and we have the authority to keep you for two or three years, and then we can ask for an extension, then there will be another two or three years. So your mind uh, <laughs> shuts down when you hear things like that. At Anoushe's lowest point, he attempted suicide. Sitting in his London living room, he pulled up the sleeve of his shirt and showed us the white scar still visible across his wrist. The reality as to why Anusha was being held in Evan would only become clear to him months after his initial arrest. The dual national, like Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe, was being used as a pawn in a dispute over a decades-old debt. A geopolitical struggle between Iran, the country in which he was born, and Britain, the country where he had made his home and raised his family. Prior to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, Iran paid the UK for tanks. With the overthrow of the Shah, the British government never delivered the weapons and also never returned the money. The Islamic Republic wanted their money back. Anoushe and his wife Sherry Yazidi only puzzled together the connection between the incarceration and the debt after an encounter with an anonymous figure as he waited outside a courtroom, handcuffed to a soldier. In one of those days, that it, quite, there was a lot of movement in there. This person came to me and sat very casually and, and said, oh, well, what are you here for? And I said, well, this is my case. Of course, you are not allowed to talk. But the soldier that was next to me, I think he was busy talking to the other soldier who was handcuffed to another person. And he said, uh, don't you think that you are related to a deal, a, a debt, something like that in that context? And I said, what debt, what deal? <laughs> Anoushe would be sentenced in September 2018 to 10 years in prison for cooperating with a hostile state and a further two years for obtaining illicit funds. During court proceedings, he would represent himself after judges rejected all of the lawyers that he had chosen. His trial would later be branded by Amnesty International as, quote, grossly unfair. The majority of Anoushe's sentence would be spent in Hall 12. All those with the accusations similar to mine are actually placed in one place, which was that dungeon, which was the famous Hall 12. It is like a small village, although it, is only, it con- consists of five rooms, one small corridor at the end of which you have got the toilets and uh, uh, a few shower cabins, we had a small patio, where, and uh, we could use the fresh air in there. But in, inside Hall 12, we were living in those five rooms. Uh, sometimes 60 of us were there, about 15 in each room. With so many people living in such close proximity, certain understandings had to be reached between inmates. Uh, when I entered room number one in Hall 12, there were about 13, 14 people there. Uh, the first thing they showed me was a piece of paper which was stuck on the wall with instructions written on it, one, two, three, four. And they told me that this is uh, the result of so many incidents uh, that had happened in earlier time. So many prisoners have participated in actually creating this list 
that the newcomer should come and read it. So once you get settled down, please go and read that. Uh, for example, you shouldn't floss inside the room or you shouldn't break winds inside the room or you shouldn't uh, blow your nose inside. Among us, we had agreed that after lunch, from half past two to half past four, is, is peace time. It, you should, if anybody wants to have a nap, but then you would see somebody start reading a newspaper and as they uh, turn the pages, uh, it would actually annoy somebody else. So we had to consider those things. Sometimes uh, it was okay, but sometimes it wasn't. And sometimes it led to uh, conflicts between people. According to Anusha, the prison officials believe those accused of being spies might influence other prisoners. But that didn't stop them from influencing each other. We had the representative of our hall, who was also a prisoner. He came to me and he was very much interested in poetry. We were talking about different things. Then he recited a poem from um, a famous poet, a Persian poet, Sohrab Sepehri. It really moved me. And I said, well, can you do another one? And he said, yes. And he could do it with so, so, so much feeling. And uh, as he was reciting that poem, another friend joined. And he also recited a poem. So the three of us were actually together. And the fourth one came. And we said, well, that was nice, so let's repeat this. Soon, a poetry society was formed. We ended up to be about seven or eight or in that, in that order. And then we allocated uh, the room uh, of that rep. Uh, and then we used to spend uh, about uh, two or three hours twice a week uh, in that room. And anybody who was interested would join, but only about eight, eight of us were there. We had the best of our time during those hours that we were together. Over time, the members of Evans Poetry Society went beyond reciting poems or reading them from the few books available from the library. They used their experiences inside Evan, as well as their memories of and longing for the outside world to inspire verse. There are some beautiful poems there uh, describing their own walls inside what we call, what, what I used to call it a coffin, because it is one meter by two meters. This is your wall, this is your home. And it's going to be your home for 10 years. So when you lie down and when you look up only a few, half a meter away, it's your ceiling, it's your sky. And that actually gave a lot of inspiration to, to those who had talents in poetry to write beautiful things that would actually make you your tears come, come down. And uh, then they, they used to come and read poems for me, uh, praising their wives, saying how much they miss their kids. All the pain. It's like the blues that came, uh, uh, appeared in, in the States, uh, explaining the suffering of black people when they were going through their hard time. These poems are exactly uh, of the same wavelength. Uh, they actually materialize uh, the pain that they are going through. Yes. And Anusha, as a dedicated member of the society, was even gifted with a poem by one of the other members. There were quite many who were interested in poetry, but only uh, I know only three who had talents of poetry. So one of them, when he discovered it was, it was my mom's birthday, uh, one day he came to me and said, well, I've written something for, for your mom. 
to, to give to her. نباشد عاشقی برتر ز مادر بشر مدیون این بانوی برتر No one can love better than a mother. Humanity is in debt to this amazing lady. She sacrifices her youth and energy without even raising a complaint. She sacrifices for her children so they can grow and earn their lives. Her deep emotions can be felt from her fingers. Her teardrop is more valuable than the sea. If she finds her children joyful, The Poetry Society provided a form of community and an outlet for creativity during an incredibly bleak time for Anusha and fellow inmates. And the sharing didn't stop with poetry. When we were in Hall 12, uh, we had this uh, lecturer uh, here, the PhD in economics, and he started teaching us macroeconomics, microeconomics, managerial, a very good friend. We had another one who had a PhD in uh, geography, He knew, uh, for example, the, the geography of United States back to front. I mean, amazing. When we, we were moved to Wing 4, and then I met such fine people who were the environmentalists who are still there. Even there, they started uh, teaching uh, and lecturing about the environment. This friend of mine who is an ex-diplomat, uh, He, he could speak Spanish very well. So he started teaching us Spanish. So about, about seven or eight of us were learning Spanish. Another one uh, started teaching about uh, the mechanism of the heart, of the human heart. So we had that. The most recent one was philosophy. So we started from uh, pre-Socratian uh, philosophers and we went to Aristotle, uh, Plato, all of that. In fact, when I was released, I had finished Middle Ages. I was just going into oh, the, the post-Middle Ages uh, ones. So many things. Uh, we used to find each other. Anusha called it Evan University. As the students waited for freedom in a geopolitical purgatory, they shared their knowledge and skills. It was a way to pass the days, weeks and months and brought them together, a shared struggle. Well, you see, when, when you get there in that little village, people get to know each other. And when you are there for five months, six months, one year, two years, three years, you get to know each other like a family. You get to know their pain, their sufferings, what their families are going through. Uh, so we bond. When Anusha was arrested in August 2017, his wife Sherry was in London. Thousands of miles away, Sherry was unsure what to do, who to speak with, and where to turn for help. You're not trained to deal with these situations, you know. You don't go through your life training for once, for having your, one of your family members taken hostage, generally. So you go to someone who knows about it. And funnily enough, that, I mean, we were so inexperienced that for nine months, we didn't even know we could go to the foreign office and ask for help. We didn't go to foreign office until June 2018. At first... Sherry reached out to the British Home Office for help. She found little solace and was turned away. Eventually, the UK Foreign Office did take responsibility, but their initial advice to Sherry was to keep quiet. But, you see, they never tell you directly to be quiet. They, they say that it's better for you because they can say, you know, we don't, we don't dictate course of action, we just advise. So they advise you to be quiet, to give diplomacy a chance, and that's... 
And of course you trust them, because who else are you going to trust? Two years into Anoushe's imprisonment, silence was no longer an option. Yeah, it, it was actually the Iranians who forced our hand, because when his appeal process and, you know, everything ended, it was September, August, September 2019, and it was the Iranians who altered him, in a way. They... You know, they probably thought, why are they not going public with this? Because what's the point of having a hostage when nobody knows about it? So they were the ones who announced it on national television. They said, we've just sentenced, you know, a, a British dual national, Anusha Shuri, to, to two sentences of 10 years and two years for being a spy. And I remember it was like early morning, I got a text from the Foreign Office that warning me that this has now been broadcast and, you know, you're going to be inundated. And when they did that, I thought, well, you know, th th now is the time to go public if, you know, and which is when we started going public. It was September 2019. Yet, even after the case went public, the British Foreign Office consistently denied the connection between Anoushe's fate and other dual nationals to the UK's historic debt. No, they denied it any time after we brought it up. I think up until 2021, the FCDO policy was always to deny any link between the debt and hostages. They, I mean, they, they, they were always reluctant to actually to acknowledge that there was a link. And so it took us about four or five years just to, for them to acknowledge that, no, there is a link. They always denied it, always, always. They always said, I, I mean, I remember up until uh, it was 2021 September, I talked to James Cleverly uh, on the phone. He'd gone to the UN General Assembly where they were hoping to meet with the new president. And to, that was, I think that was just after Liz Truss had been appointed. And uh, I, I asked him, I, I said, did you discuss the debt? And he said, um, well, I can't really comment on that, but there's no connection between the debt and your cases anyway. So Eventually, the debt was paid, announced by Foreign Secretary Liz Truss in the same letter that confirmed Anoushe and Nazanin's release, dated March 16th, 2022. Details about how the debt was paid and what form the payment took remain unclear, even to Anoushe and Sherry. They attribute the failure to bring Anoushe home, not down to individuals of the Foreign Office, but to a failure of process. An inquiry, the couple said, will not return the years lost, but may provide some answers for those left behind. I don't know about closure, but it might help other people who are still there, possibly. Uh, it might give their families something to cling to, you know, if they actually find out why, why, why is it that almost five years of his life had to be wasted, six years of Nazanin's, you know, miss her kid growing up, when this debt could have been paid many years ago, what, why did they have to go through this suffering? So it might be good to get an answer to that, actually. Yeah. Sherry's advice for families of other dual nationals still stuck in Evan: let your voice be heard. I was often asked over the years. Given the choice, would I have publicised this earlier? And I, I always say in a heartbeat, I wish I'd publicised it from day one when he'd been arrested, you know. Because, and that's, I, that's what I'm urging all the remaining families to do, to make their voices heard. 
it is it is good to be outspoken. You will you won't get anywhere if you're not. You'll be forgotten. Now back in South London, Anushi and Sherry want to start a new chapter in their lives. Anushi plans to turn his prison diaries into a book. After hours spent running around the small prison exercise yard, he is now continuing with his fitness routine and has ambitions to run the London Marathon. Sherry plans to sign them up for ballroom dancing. While they are overjoyed at Anusha's return, their experience of the last five years has only strengthened their resolve to see the return of all dual nationals that unjustly remain behind bars in Iran. And both are adamant. They will not stop speaking out. And those were the two years that were wasted, that if I was outspoken, perhaps I would be with my family. Nazanin would be back earlier. So you must speak out. And you must demand your rights. The new Arab Voice reached out to the UK Foreign Office during the reporting of this story. They sent us this reply. From the Prime Minister down, this government was always committed to securing the release of Anoushe Ashuri. It was always entirely in Iran's gift to do this, but UK ministers and diplomats were tireless in working to secure his freedom and are delighted that he is now home. The New Arab Voice is written and produced by Hugo Goodridge and Rosie McCabe. Our theme music was by Omar Elphil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. 